in 85, 15 years later, when, uh, when I did Miami Vice, uh, Tony Yurkovich wrote the pilot and he created it. When I, I had the creative control over the show, over the content and everything else, um, you know, Miami was this, Miami was this twilight zone. Miami was the, was, was Casablanca. It was the northern banking capital of all the drug money in Latin America and all the, you know, oligarchies and all the kleptocracies of Latin America banked in Miami. Explosive um, mixture. It was an explosive mixture, and it was just a lot of people with a lot of sea bags full of $100 bills walking in a B.B. Rebozo's bank. That's Nixon's best friend. Best friend. And it, it, uh, when I saw uh, Scarface, I thought it was hyperbolic and overblown. When I got to Miami, I realized that Brian De Palma had indulged an understatement, that Miami was wilder on the ground than most things in, uh, in Scarface. Welcome to a brand new episode of Not A Bomb Podcast. This is the show where we go back and talk about the movies that bombed at the cinemas or didn't fare too well with the critics. Brad, we're still doing bromance movies. And happy Valentine's Day, by the way. It's right around the corner. Yeah. as At the time of this recording, it is tomorrow. Yes. I'm super excited. We uh, get to talk all month about bromance movies, too. I mean, I know last year we did the whole... Wives get the program. Not going to happen this year. Big, big mistake. Yes, terrible mistake. Uh, but speaking of wives, I, I do have to throw it out there. Tomorrow, Tab and I will celebrate 25 years. Um, uh, we met on Valentine's Day at an anti-Valentine's Day party. Tomorrow's 25 years. Can you believe that? Wow, the irony in meeting your wife at an anti-Valentine's Day party. I know she needs a and medal. then being with her for 25 years. She needs a medal. Um, she's a trooper, man. But uh, what what are we talking about tonight? We. We, we wanted to do a whole bromance theme, so we're picking movies that have a have a bromance at the center of it. So what's tonight's pick? Yeah, so this one is directed by one of my favorite directors uh, based on a television show from the 80s, probably one of the most iconic bromances in television history. It is Miami Vice. I'm super excited. So this, this was my pick, and Michael Mann doesn't have a ton of films. I think there's only a couple. We've talked about one. We'll get to that soon. That he's either missed from a financial perspective or with the critics. This one, when we get into the numbers, it's really close. It's really close. But um, but I, I thought it'd be interesting before we talk about Miami Vice. I mean, this thing is based on a pretty influential television series from the 80s. I thought it would be fun for us to share maybe our top three movies that were based on television shows. So I'm going to kick it over to you for the first one. We'll start with your number three. So what is your third favorite film based on television show? Yeah, this one is, was pretty easy for me because I don't think we make a whole lot of awesome chase films anymore, especially not with ones with Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones. It's based on the television show of the same name. It is the fugitive. Oh man. Great. Dr. Richard Kimball. I have watched this um, film recently. And I still think it's one of the best chase films, uh, that we've have. And I love it. I think it's endlessly entertaining. 
Well, and Tommy Lee Jones, he won an Academy Award for that, didn't he? He did. Yeah. I want you to check every outhouse, in-house, whorehouse. <laughs> His performance in that just makes that film. But I, I agree with you 100%. Uh, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna kick uh, my number three up, and we've talked about this movie already, actually. So I love spy television, and it, it was just one of those things coming home from school. There were a couple of TV series that we we always watched. One was Wild Wild West, and I am not picking that film because I'm not a big fan of that one. But the other series uh, that I kind of grew up on that I just loved from the, was from the '60s. And it's the man from uncle 2015 is the man from uncle. Now we've already talked about this on the show and um, it's a guy Ritchie film. I think it's probably my favorite guy Ritchie film to be quite honest, even over snatch and all of the, it's just, it's so rewatchable for me. I, I was is it better than Aladdin live action. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is. It is. It is. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I don't know. I mean, pe- people can talk about, you know, all of the other Guy Ritchie films. This one holds a special place because I really love that TV show growing up. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I think they nailed it. And I was so disappointed that it kind of bombed. And we're not, you know, we're not ever getting a sequel. Nope. Uh, I mean, the, the, the best you could hope for is a reboot. But I don't even think that a show like that gets one try at films. And then if it doesn't work, then they are going to try something else. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Okay, what's your number two then? So my number two is based on my favorite, well, one of my favorite television shows of all time. It aired from 1993 to 2002. It basically took up my whole uh, middle school, high school days. The film was released in 1998. It is the X-Files Fight the Future. Oh, goodness. Now, you had to have watched that one after how many seasons? Because- they had a couple of films, right? In between. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. There is. I want to believe is the second one. Um, I believe this was five years after the the pilots. Um, yeah, and, and basically, uh, fight the future is just a big budget two hour episode of the show, and like they reference it in the in the TV series afterwards, and it played a big part. Like it it was basically just going to see Mulder and Scully on the big screen for a basically two hour um, episode. It was great. I remember going to the theater and just loving every second of it. Is the film perfect? No. Um, but I, I will always have a soft spot for anything X files. I just went back and watched season one and oh my goodness, I forgot how good it is. That show was fantastic. It, it really is. Was. It is. It's uh we're getting to the point now where it's, people were kind of sleeping on it. Like it's, it premiered 30 years ago and I think it's getting people don't think of it as much as they should. Like, I think like a show like twin peaks has kind of succeeded it a little bit. Um, cause it's kind of weird and like the, that Apple TV show, what's it called? Severance or something like that is like playing on, on, um, kind of the twin peaks vibe, but I don't know. There's just something about the X files that I just loved in, it could be the unspoken or maybe spoken romance between Mulder and Scully as well. Um, but I just loved how weird it was and UFOs are back in the news now. So <laughs> that's uh, true. Yeah. We, we need to read more relevant it. now than yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to stick in the spy genre cause it was one of my favorites. So this was another show that we watched quite a bit. Um, and it ended up creating a film 
for one of the last movie stars we have. And and this guy has turned it into just a juggernaut. And of course, you know, I'm going to bring up mission impossible from the sixties and mission impossible is my number one. Oh, it is. Okay. Yes. I am. <laughs> what I've loved about what everybody has done with that film series because if you think about De Palma doing the first one, John mm-hmm. Woo did the second one, and even yep. the directors have been you know attached since then. Abrams, yeah, yeah. Mission Impossible, the television show, it it has some campiness to it, obviously. That '60s you know spy feel to mm-hmm. it. And what I've loved about the films is it was able to embrace that the whole face swapping and everything else, and still make it fresh, but keep a little bit of that campiness with it. And I like also all of the directors that they brought on board have just upped the ante, but they've they've stuck to the core of what the television show was. And it's a lot of fun. The movies are fantastic. I think mm-hmm. they're probably some of the best action movies we've got now. Super excited about the new one coming out this year. But the, the show's a lot of fun to go back and visit to as well. Yeah. Um, I like the movies a lot more than the show because I came to the show much later in life. And I, I, when you see something from the 60s, uh, it could be a little jarring. Um, just the, and like you said, the campiness of it, go back, like go back and watch some of the James Bond films from them. If, if like Casino Royale or Skyfall was your first James Bond, that's going to really kind of turn you off a bit because they're just so different. Um, but they're very entertaining and very, uh, sort of fun. And if, if I can say that, like they're just, it's a fun show um, for the films. I remember seeing rogue nation and be like, this is one of the best action films I've ever seen. And then you see like uh fallout. You're like, this is the best action film I've ever seen. Like, <laughs> they are they just amazing keep going and getting better and better and cruise. It's essentially just a vehicle to show how awesome Tom Cruise is. Um, yeah. Like I saw that, um, preview for the newest one in the theater. And it's like, I'm there minute one. Like oh, I'm all take, you had to I do was taking sh- off work <laughs> to make sure I can see the very first showing I'm there. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 there's just something about mission impossible. Now it's, it's like appointment television in the movie theater. Like you have to see it. It, it just, you have to see what they're doing. So they have done such a great job taking the premise and that theme song, that theme song is one of the best in using it and, and creating this, uh, sort of, like I said, this vehicle for Tom Cruise to show off, Hey, I am the last living, uh, star that we have and watch me do some cool stunts for the next two hours. Yeah. He out Jackie Chan's Jackie Chan for the most part. Yeah. In, in, in today's cinematic environment, right? For sure, yes. Uh, and, and what's weird is when preteens, right? So probably 10 to 13, we were growing up on like Roger Moore and then the transition to Timothy Dalton as James Bond. And uh, my my longtime friend Kevin, that what what we played all the time, I mean, everybody had Dungeons and Dragons. We had Top Secret, which was made by the same company, TSR. And that was our RPG. And so in order to really get into it, you're watching James Bond films, you're watching Man from Uncle, Mission Impossible, The Saint, all these spy shows, <laughs> which just feed into us creating little adventures so that we could hang out with, you know, with our friends and, and play that top secret RPG. So 
I, I do think you you probably, I don't know, Mission Impossible, even Man from Uncle might be more digestible if your introduction to things like James Bond was the Roger Moore era, right? Or Sean Connery, stuff like that. Probably more so the Roger Moore because yeah. there, there is that little bit of campiness in it. But yeah, we we absolutely loved watching um, both those shows. And I, I think that's why when I was thinking about television shows that jumped to the big screen, I mean, I, The Fugitive came to mind. Uh, 21 Jump Street, mm-hmm. um, even The Saint. I, I really like the Val Kilmer film. Uh, but it, it, Did you think about Masters of the Universe as well? No, sure didn't. <laughs> sure didn't. Um, maybe G.I. Joe. Uh, yeah, I thought about G.I. Joe. But uh, no, it came down to Man from Uncle, Mission Impossible for like my three and two. and that So that was your number one. Okay. It was my number one. All right. What was your number two? Uh, X-Files. Oh, that's right. Okay. So it's just left to me. All right. Uh, okay. So this one, I have to admit, I saw the film first, had no idea that it was based on a television show, went back to watch the television show. And it soon became one of my favorite TV series of all time, even though it, it's so short lived, just totally short lived. So the film series, there's three of them. The first one is fantastic. The second one is funny. And the third one has funny parts to it. It, it Ooh, did, can I take a guess? Yeah, go ahead. Is it Naked Gun? It is the Naked Gun. Okay. <laughs> I almost had that in my top three. Yeah, Naked Gun from the Files of Police Squad, I think came out in 1988. And I remember seeing the film and just absolutely falling in love with it. And it wasn't until I think the film had hit like VHS that somebody had said, you know, that was an old television show. And when you go and watch the TV show, a lot of the gags in the film, they do borrow from the TV series. But I got to tell you, that TV series still holds up. It's super, super funny. Um, I actually think it might be funnier than than the movies. But man, that first Naked Gun. That first Naked Gun is a perfect comedy. It, it, it might be one of the few perfect comedies out there. But you cannot go wrong watching the film series. And then even uh, going back and watching the TV shows, yeah, you're going to see some, you know, repeatable jokes and some visual gags, but it works. I, I, I think even seeing it two or three times in a row, it's still super funny. There weren't many, there weren't many episodes of the television show, right? No, it was, it was super short lived. Like six um, months wasn't on like, yeah, maybe was, even less than that. It, it was a failed experiment, but it was one of the, it's one of the ones that I always gravitate to when we talk about television shows first that became films. Um, I don't know how many people I, I must have been like one of the only ones, but I never knew about the TV show, but the films introduced me to the TV show. So I, I don't know, just have a, have a soft spot in my heart for that one. Awesome. I love that first film so much. Yeah, it's so good. Well, if, if we were doing a top 10, Miami vice would be in there for me. I got, I got to be honest. The TV show, the TV the, okay, show, the going to the film. Um, we'll share our thoughts on the film, but I, I really did enjoy Miami Vice um, when it came out, and we'll talk a little bit about the history of the TV show. I got to confess, I never really liked the TV show much. Oh, really? What, yeah. Was there something it about it out, you didn't? I don't know if it was just sort of the. I wasn't into like the neon. South Florida vibe and all that. Like I just, I'd never was into that when I was growing up. Now, when I've gone back and, and seen it now as a, like a younger or an older, more mature person, I really appreciate that. And, and a lot of things have cribbed from that most notably, like 
Grand Theft Auto Vice City is essentially playing Miami Vice. The video game, um, yeah, pretty much. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, and a lot of things have, have cribbed from that. Um, there's even some spots in, like, Drive, which I know that's in California, but it there's a lot of stuff in Drive that kind of steals from Miami Vice as well. Um, but initially, I was really turned off by it. Um, it's a TV show that's really interesting. I think it was for five seasons. And where it starts in season one, even tonally, and its color palette, everything else, versus where it goes in season five, I mean, um, it changed hands. So Michael Mann, and I can't remember it one season, kind of handed it off. And uh, it, it, it's, it's a series that got more and more dark in tone, storytelling, and everything else. So I think it really had its heyday around season two. So when it when it first came out, it wasn't doing so hot, but it was the reruns of that first season that got it super popular. Season two, it was just um, it, it was influencing everything, right? And then season three, it wasn't as good as season two. You had some people starting to leave from the creative process, and then um, you get to four, and and the ratings start to go down. And five, at one point, I don't even think they were going to have a full season. It was just going to be like twelve or thirteen episodes. Yeah, but it ended up being a full season. But you know, it ended right. So depending on where you pick up in the Miami Vice series, if, if you were to start at like season three, four, and five, you go, wow, that that's got some dark storytelling, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then you get into season one and two, and and it's a little bit lighter. Uh, and, and again, there's just a tonal shift because there's a creative shift behind the scenes too. But let's talk about the film, Michael Mann's two, Miami Vice from 2006. So when this came out, it, it had sort of mixed reviews and even mixed results at the box office. So let's go back and kick it over to you and, and you kind of talk about when this thing hit the theaters. Yeah. So this was a, a summer blockbuster film in 2006. So it comes out July 28th. 2006 with a reported budget of $135 million. I think all that money went to the digital cameras for this film. Um, <laughs> Could be. Yeah. The uh, total box office run uh, domestically makes $63 million and makes another $100 million internationally for a grand total of $163 million. So added P&A, on 135, you're looking at probably 250 to 270. So 163, not even close to what your break-even point is. So pretty big bomb. Um, also bombed kind of critically. Critics have this at a 47%, and the audience has it at a 43%. Um, I was a little bit surprised by that. I would have thought the Michael Mann stands, if you will, would sort of come to defend this film. But um, I could see why it turned some people off. Cause I think around this time we were getting TV adaptations like Starsky and Hutch and we were getting what Dukes of Hazard, both sort of big box comedies. Uh, My device is not that it is not a comedy at all. And, and I would also say if you're looking for, I mean, when you think of eighties and you think of, um, you know, just the neon and, and maybe the tropes of the eighties, mm -hmm. e even Halloween costumes, you get, um, you know, crocodile tubs, right? Yeah. So yep. <laughs> this version 
or interpretation of Miami Vice is not what you expect. Meaning it's not it's not it's not taking place in the eighties. It's not making fun of the eighties. It is really probably closer in tone and everything to to the latter part of the series. Yes. Yeah. And it's definitely set in the two thousands. We are very um time and place with this release. Um I I will say that we have a gift from our favorite website, uh oh, movieguide.org. Oh boy. Movie guide uh reviews films not for their quality but for their contents. And they have some issues with Miami Vice Troy. Uh oh. What do you think their rating for this film was? So the score is plus four. Mm-hmm. Uh, so minus four. To plus minus four, four being the most holy and uh minus four being the most hellbound. Wow. Now, remember, I think we watched, if you have the Blu-ray, I believe you watched the unrated cut. So this is probably. Yeah, it depends. If you have the Blu-ray from Mill Creek that has this and the kingdom on it, that would have been the theatrical cut. Okay. If it was the standalone Blu-ray or DVD, that's the unrated version, which there's a huge difference. There's not a huge difference. If I'm going to guess... There, there obviously is a pagan worldview in there. <laughs> always. There's always, always a pagan There's world. always a pagan worldview. This one's got some violence to it. Uh, I'm going to say negative three. Oh, it is a negative two. Really? Because it, there, it's kind of shocking the stuff they pull out of this. Okay. So not a, not a pagan worldview in this. Are you, are you serious? Okay. Strong moral worldview. Mm, all right. About destroying a murderous drug smuggling ring. Mm-hmm. Spoiled by a couple loose ends in sexual immorality, 34 obscenities and one strong profanity. I don't know what the one strong one would be. Uh, there was, there's a few profanities through there. I would, what's I the one that's, yeah. What's the one that sticks out over all of them? I don't know. Did they say the C word in this? I didn't I, I know. I didn't think it go that far, but okay. Yeah. Very strong action violence with some shocking shootings, including headshots. Yeah. Other point blank shootings with some blood spurting. Police officer breaks bones of villains in combat shootouts. Man steps in front of truck and movie cuts to truck, smearing blood on the freeway. Gangsters assassinate undercover cops. Girls roughed up and explosions. Depicted fornication in three scenes. Passionate kissing. Ooh, that's always bad. Um, gangster goes into bedroom with two women. In a couple steamy shower scenes between unmarried lovers, brief upper female nudity and rear nudity. So when they say steamy shower, is it steamy because it was hot and they were just bathing or they were doing things in the shower? I think it's, I think it's both. I think that, that both, that word does both of those things because it was steamy and it was steamy. Okay. Got it. Um, Mm -hmm. Alcohol use, smoking and plot involves undercover police officers trying to stop drug gang that has murdered some other undercover officers and some miscellaneous immorality, such as police officers lie to undercover to what? uncover against a brutal drug smuggling operation. They got to lie. They're undercover. Yeah. I know, that's what being undercover. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> it's like, Hey, if you're a cop, so, you have to tell me that's not true. So um, we're, we now know Christians do not make good undercover agents because no, they're telling they the truth like, all the time. Oh yeah. Come, I'm a cop. Yes. Oh, yeah, I'm a yes, cop. Sorry 100% about that. A cop. Two discussions about being lucky mm-hmm. and right. running out of luck. 
Troy, luck? I don't know if you know this, but Christians don't believe in luck. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Got it. Yep. And Got some it. loose ends could have been tied up better. Morality speaking, mor- morally speaking, sorry. Huh. But if you go on to read a little bit about it, it says Miami Vice is an exciting thriller with excellent performances, especially by Colin Farrell and Gong Lee. It leaves a few annoying loose ends in its story, however, and then I won't read the rest, but they kind of like this movie. Wait, what? Okay, so is that the first time we've heard from them? where they're kind of rating it on the quality of the filmmaking? No, they always kind of do a bit, um, but it's never, if it's like a negative three, they hate it. It's oh, like, okay. well, this movie is, is garbage because it doesn't praise Jesus every two seconds. So negative two like the threshold where they're, they're going to kind of like it. They, they're like, you know what? This movie kind of slaps. Okay. All right. Hey, there you go. Yeah. All right. Surprising. A thumbs up from the Christians. I, yeah, when they when they were like, yeah, this is kind of an exciting film. I was like, did they like this? Even though the cops were lying because they're undercover. That's <laughs> so awesome. And lastly, yeah, films you could have seen in July of 2006. We have Pirates of the Caribbean: Dead Man's Chest, which was go on to make 1.4 billion dollars. I'm sorry, did you say did you say billion? Billion. Oh Lord. Okay. Billion. A uh, film that we've done in the past, A Scanner Darkly. Uh-huh. Um, we have A Brave Story. We have the, oh, we have Little Man. Remember Little Man? Oh, yes. I do remember that. Yes. Well, wow. that movie. We're going to have to talk made, about that one. It was a that success, That movie though. made $134 million. Yeah, but critically, um, I don't think it did very well. No, no. Uh, <laughs> you, Me, and Dupree, another big box comedy, makes $172 million. That thing made what? $172 million? Oh Jim my God. Carrey, at that, at that point in time, was just raking in money. Wait, You, Me, and Dupree? I thought that was Owen, oh, Owen Wilson. Owen Wilson. What's the... Oh, it, Me, Myself, and Irene. So, and Irene. Yeah. Oh, that's a different one. Whoa. Mm, okay. It's Farley Brothers. I like that one much less. Me, you, and Dupree. <laughs> I don't like that one much at all. Um, Lady in the Water, Monster House, My Super Ex-Girlfriends, Little Miss Sunshine, The Ant Bully. Um, what else we got? John Tucker Must Die. I Like Killing... No. What? <laughs> I Like Killing Flies, which was uh, made $16,000. So not in uh, Scoop. Scoop. Uh, Remember Scoop? Yeah, I do. Uh, that's a, so a lot of, a lot of releases in July of 06. Yeah. Sort of a mixed bag. It's crazy when you read that list off and go, this is what came out in one month in 2006 compared to what gets released now. Night yeah. and day, night day. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about the people behind the camera first. Uh, we've already talked about Michael Mann. Can we talk about him some more? Cause I love Michael Mann. We can just, just a little refresher. If everybody goes back to episode 77, we talked about another bomb, uh, Black Hat from 2015. Mm-hmm. And we both said at the end of the day, it was marginal, it was close, but we both called it a bomb mm-hmm. and didn't necessarily recommend it. Uh, to put things in perspective for in terms of his career, Michael Mann had done Collateral in 2004, so he worked with Jamie Foxx on that and Tom Cruise, and comes to do Miami Vice a few years later and then follows that up with public enemies screenplay by Michael Mann. 
the movie is based on a TV series created by Anthony Yurkovich. So Anthony Yurkovich had worked on shows like Starsky and Hutch, Fantasy Island. I think he was a writer and co-creator for Hill Street Blues, um, which led him into Miami Vice. The original television series lasted five seasons. It ran from 84 to 89. And for those who lived under a rock, Miami Vice in the 80s was pretty much um, MTV cops, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you, if you were in the 80s, especially around 84 to 85, that TV show had such a heavy influence on fashion, music, pop culture, especially around season two. Because you would have these amazing guest stars, the music or the soundtrack. I mean, I bought the vinyl album back in the 80s. Uh, it, it just was the thing to watch, right? Mm-hmm. And Michael Mann was an executive producer and also had um, done, I think, some writing and directing for the show as well, if I remember correctly. Yes. Cinematography is by Dion Beebe. So, well, I, well okay. one more thing on Mann. Yeah. I... I respect Michael Mann a lot more than a lot of other directors because he is obsessed with the process. So any anytime you see a film of his, he is not only worried about making a good film, but kind of deconstructing how things work. If you watch Heat, there's a lot of breakdowns about how bank robberies work. Here it's about drug smuggling. Black Hat, it's about, you know, hacking, things like that. He is just obsessed with how things work in the process of making things work. And I think deep down, I kind of do that at my day to day as well. So I think that's why man and I kind of speak the same language is because he's just obsessed with how it, how things move, like how, what, what are all the moving pieces and things? And I think that just really speaks to me. Well, I, I would say that's a, a really apt comment from him as a filmmaker and storyteller. Yes, because I mean, and visually, I think he's can has some of the best visuals in films as well. But yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Like you watch a Michael Mann film, there's so much detail and layers to the characters and the stories and authenticity. But I feel like he's that way with the filmmaking as well from a technical aspect. Yeah, because if you watch interviews about the the process of making the film and not just the history and the detail he adds into like the story and the characters. I mean, he he is totally obsessed with it from start to finish, in front of the camera, mm-hmm. behind the camera, yep. the screenplay, the whole nine yards. So I, I I think that's a really good observation about him. So let's talk about cinematographer um, Dion Beebe. So Dion won an Oscar for Best Cinematography for Memoirs of a Geisha from 2005. He was nominated for Best Cinematography for Chicago. And around this time period, leading up to Miami Vice, he had he had done Collateral, Memoirs of a Geisha in 2005, Miami Vice, and then finished that up with Rendition in 2007. Editors, um, because I think we'll talk about the editing. We'll, we'll probably talk about Michael Mann. I guarantee we'll talk about cinematography. And we'll also talk about the editing. Mm-hmm. And there's some pedigree here as well. We've got two editors, William Goldenberg, nominated for Best Film Editing for The Imitation Game, Zero Dark Thirty, Seabiscuit and The Insider. So he's, he got nominated four times. He won in 2012 for Argo. I think uh, he was nominated against himself. Wasn't Argo and Zero Dark Thirty both up for? Yes. So he also lost, he lost and won. Yes. That year, Zero Dark Thirty, 2012 and Argo, 2012 okay. and he won for Argo. Um, and Wouldn't that, like, isn't that just one of the ultimate flex moves where you're just like, 
I won this award, but I also beat myself. But like, well, you know. there's another name's yeah. going to come up and do the same thing yeah. at an Oscar ceremony. Okay, so Paul Rubel is the other editor. He was nominated for best film editing for two films, both of the Michael Mann films, Collateral in 2004 and The Insider in 1999. So just between the cinematography and editors on the film, you, you've really got some talent working behind the screen, uh, putting this thing together, right? So keep that in mind. Music by John Murphy. Now, I, I do want to call out one of the songs that came from the original TV show that's still played to this day is Phil Collins' In the Air Tonight. Mm -hmm. And there is a rendition in this film done by a band called Nonpoint. We'll talk about how successful that is. So let's talk about the cast, and we're going to kick it off with Sonny Crockett himself, Colin Farrell. Have we talked about Colin Farrell before? I don't think we have. I don't think we have. What, what's your take on him as an actor? I love, I love Colin, especially this renaissance we have with sort of his independent work. I would say, like, not independent, but not mainstream work. In Bruges, Seven Psychopaths, the, his new film, um... Oh yes, with the same Banshees. director. Yeah, um, well, he's he's all over the place. He's done mainstream stuff, independent film. Done, yeah, he will admit that in the early two thousands that he was a drunk and a terrible person to work for. He went to rehab and has cleaned himself up and has become one of my favorite actors. Um, you know, he's I think he's great in Minority Report, but apparently, like you know, again. He was just an asshole to people because he was just a drunkard. Uh, but he's cleaned himself up. And it's funny. You see him now and you watch him in uh, Miami Vice and he looks way better now than he did, uh, you know, 15 years ago or whatever. So good on him. I'm glad he, you know, fixed things uh, with his life. But I really like his sort of you know, art house, uh, acting chops. Um, cause he can do both. Like he's great in the gentleman. I think he's probably the best part of the gentleman. Um, yeah, I, 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 I would put him in probably my top 10 of current actors working today. I a hundred percent agree. I've, I love the fact that he does everything from action to comedy, to the quirky indie stuff. Uh, even a film like the lobster where it just has such an unusual premise mm -hmm. with him at the helm you you believe the entire society, the entire world, that that entire story. Yeah, and the killing of the sacred deer as well. Same sort of dark comedy. Yeah, uh, around this time period. So he was in some high profile films leading up to Miami Vice. So let's go back to two thousand four, and I I do want to talk about this film sometime. He was in Alexander Oliver Stone's Alexander. Oh. Yeah, and I mean that that got released like three different times with three different cuts. Stone didn't know what he wanted to do with it. Yeah, but it it will be interesting to revisit that one and talk about Colin Farrell. He follows that up with I think Terrence Malick film 2005's The New World, mm -hmm. which I really enjoy. I I really like that film and I think he's I, fantastic in it. I, I I will second that. I like that film quite a bit. I don't like Alexander. Well, I think Alexander is more interesting as a watch piece and less interesting as a film. If you know what I'm saying? Like, Oh, I agree. It, it's, it's a disaster. Bonkers. Yes. But you have to watch it. Yeah. It's a, it's a fun watch to, to see the lunacy that unfolds. Mm -hmm. So in 2006, he has Miami vice and asked the dust and then follows it up with Cassandra's dream in 2007, which I think is a Woody Allen drama piece. 
I haven't seen that. Uh, it's okay. It's all right. Okay. It's not bad. And then, of course, 2008's uh, In Bruges, which is phenomenal. Uh-huh. Uh, so that leads us to Jamie Foxx's Ricardo Tubbs. Now, we were talking about people who get nominated and lose to themselves at the Oscars. So in 2004, uh, Jamie Foxx is nominated for Best Actor in Ray and also nominated as Best Supporting Actor in Collateral. He wins one of them. He wins Best Actor for Ray. I What? I... <sighs> When people win for biopics, it just, I don't know. It feels like a cheat. It just Why feels like a cheat because I don't know. We, there's no creation of a character. You're playing somebody else. I, I, I don't know. I always like it when a actor portrays someone and comes up with a character and, and all the traits and they're really, creating something when you do a biopic like um austin butler right yeah. for elvis mm-hmm. i think it's a great film and i think he does a, a amazing performance he's playing elvis like we all know who elvis is like, i i just it doesn't che- well maybe it does cheapen the performance for me it just it just feels weird i always think like oh we should have a separate category for <laughs> biopics because they're they're i don't know they're uh, okay, they're playing I'll, somebody. I'll make the counter argument. Yes, they're playing somebody, and a bad biopic performance you can see a mile away because it does look like a, an imitation, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think it could be. Now again, I'm not an actor, but I find that one to be more challenging because you could take something like Ray and say, "All right, I'm I'm going to do a great imitation of Ray Charles." Fine. But do you actually capture Ray Charles and the essence of him, the humanity, what made Ray Charles special? Like Elvis, I agree 100%. His, his mannerisms, his Elvis mannerisms are so good. But then the question is, does he capture that mysticism, mystique, the what, Elvis, what made Elvis Presley so unique? I, I think he does. Yeah, And and I would actually say, I would kind of go on the opposite and say, well, I would actually think a biopic performance would be the hardest to do because you could get wrapped up in imitation and forget to tap into what made that thing so special that that real life person carried. And how do you bring it to the screen and make it not feel cheap? Yeah, I'm just thinking of all the time the Best Actor Award has gone to someone in a biopic and it seems like it's... Anytime there's a high profile biopic, that actor is getting the best actor award. And I just, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, no. And, and may, maybe duly so. Like I, I can see both sides of the fence. I can see your argument, but I can also see somebody coming back and saying, man, you, you don't know how hard it is to play Ray Charles and not just come off like, oh, well, that, that was a good Ray Charles. Cause I think, I think Max is a, I think his performance in collateral as Max is better than the Ray Charles. Uh, I think they're both phenomenal. Like yeah. if, if he walked away with both statues, I would have not been disappointed that year. Yeah. Jamie Foxx is one of those people that you hate because he's funny. He yeah. can sing. <laughs> he can act. He's good looking. Like you're just like, dude, stop it. He is the complete but, package. Yeah. But I miss him in stuff. Like, of course he's in a Tarantino film. He's, he's Django, but yeah. Somewhere along the way, it's like he's not in enough stuff. 
Well, around the early 2000s. So we got Ray, 2004, and uh, Collateral. Follows that up with Stealth, 2005. Uh, Jarhead in 2005. He's got two films in 2006, Miami Vice and Dreamgirls. Mm -hmm. And then he does sort of another action drama, 2007's The Kingdom. I like the kingdom a lot. I, I do too. Uh, I really like this era of, of Jamie Foxx. And I agree with you. I, I think we look back on it in terms of actors and performances. Jamie Foxx is, might be a bit underrated to be quite honest. I, I definitely think so. Um, yeah. Yeah. There, I just, I, there's some good stuff. I just, there. there's, there's just something like he, like in baby driver, I think he's excellent in baby driver. He's like, oh, why so is good. he not in like, so many of these movies, like we need him in more stuff. Um, oh, I agree. hundred percent. I do. I will take I him did over. Like Will that Smith I did like day over. shift pretty much because of Jamie Foxx. So what's well, a great example. I it's, it's such a average premise. Um, I don't, I think everybody else is pretty meh in it. Although Scott Atkins, he has a, yeah. that scene is fantastic, but Jamie Foxx is what makes that movie good. In my opinion, did you see the, did you watch the Super Bowl last night? I did. Or yeah. the big game. I don't know if we're I did watch the Kansas City Chiefs um, oh, yes, that's win, right. being, being a um, Kansas boy. Did yeah. you see the preview for Strays? I did. The yeah. vulgar dog movie? Yeah. We were like, what is this? Yeah. And Jamie Foxx is playing one. I, I was baffled. Okay, All sorry. More power. Okay, well, let's talk about another one. Now, we've talked about Gong Li before when we discussed Milan, uh, Disney's live-action version of Milan. So here's an actress that I don't think a lot of people know about simply because of her work, obviously, um, in Chinese cinema, right? Well, and you brought up memoirs of, of, of Geisha. Yeah. Right? So that's yeah. when she starts sort of making appearances over an American film. But if you go back, I mean, if when, when you sit down and look at just a selected filmography of Gong Li, you've got Raise the Red Lantern, The Banquet, Farewell My Concubine. Um, she even did a Stephen Chow film in the early nineties called flirting scholar, which is really good. Yes. We've got to live Shanghai triad. My favorite movie of hers. I don't know if you've seen this, Brad, we may have talked about this in Milan. It's the emperor and the assassin. Emperor and the assassin. 1998. Yeah. yeah. It, that is one of like, that's the one I'm waiting for criterion to pick up at some point. It is an amazing film. I love it so much. And then you've got 2046 in 2004, she does Memoirs of a Geisha in 2005, Miami Vice in 2006. Also that same year, she stars in a film with Chai and Fat, Curse of the Golden Flower, follows that up with Hannibal Rising. So one, I would say on an international stage, Gong Li's like a top 10 actress for me when you, when you look at that resume. She's fantastic. Yes, I also think she is stunning to look at. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> Absolutely mesmerizing. Um, she is right there. She's Michelle Yeoh quality. Uh, I mean, she mm -hmm. can do it all. Uh, we also get Naomi Harris as, um, Tr is it Trudy Joplin? Yeah, that's yeah. her character's name. I think most people know her from Miss Moneypenny and the Daniel Craig James Bond films. She's also been um, in the Pirates of the Caribbean series. And more recently, she showed up in the Marvel Cinematic Universe as Shriek in Venom: Let There Be Carnage. Yep. Uh, we have another person talking about talk about another stunning woman. Yes, 
just absolutely fantastic. A great she was dad. in Moonlight as well. Moonlight. Yes. Uh, her, that she, I think she was nominated for a lot of that in Moon Knight. Yeah. Or she's, Moonlight. Sorry, not Moon Knight. Sorry. Sorry, Troy. Yeah. Sorry. Not Moon Knight. Not Moon Knight. <laughs> she's, she's a fantastic actress. We've got um, John Ortiz as Jose Hierro. We talked about him because he was in Black Hat, another Michael Mann film from 2015. Mm-hmm. We get Louis Tosar as Montoya. Now, I looked at his credits. He got 120 credits. And I got to be honest, I've not seen any of the other stuff that he's been in. It's a lot of Spanish stuff, right? It is a lot of um, Spanish television and film. We get Justin Thoreau's detective Larry Zito. I think everybody will know him from Zoolander 2 as the evil DJ. That That's probably his. Uh, he starred in one of the best TV shows of all time, Troy. What, what's that? The leftovers. Oh, well, I was, I was gonna say Zoolander two is probably mm. where he peaked as the evil DJ. Uh, the left, the leftovers. Yeah, I know. I've got that. I've got that in my queue. I'm going to watch it. Cause you keep talking about it being one of the best things ever. Season three is a perfect season of television. Okay. I, I trust you, man. We've got Elizabeth Rodriguez as Gina, which we'll talk about this later, probably has the coolest line of dialogue in the entire film. Uh, Ooh, okay. Yeah. I would hear. Yeah, she has been in in films like Logan from 2017. Dominic Lombardozzi is Detective Ooh, Stan Swiddick. Uh, most recently in The Irishman, 2019, King of Staten Island. So a character actor. He's got a pretty good pedigree. And then he's only in it for a few minutes. He's in the beginning. John Hawks is Alonzo Stevens. And, of course, here's our Jackie Chan connection. He was in Rush Hour from 1998. Yep. He's the man who uh, stepped out in front of the truck. He is. He kind of sets everything in motion with uh, the stuff he's going through. So, Brad, we have another film. So when we talk about bombs, one of the things we talk about is, hey, there might have been some trouble behind the scenes. Yep. Yeah, we got one here. So let's talk about production and development. So how this all got started, Jamie Foxx brought up the idea of Miami Vice film to Michael Mann during a screening or a party for Ali. And this led man to revisit the series that he helped create. So the production was characterized as troubled from the get go, marked by a series of delays and conflicts. Seven days of filming were lost to hurricanes, Katrina, Rita and Wilma. The delays led to a budget of what some insiders claim to be over 150 million. Yep. Though universal picture says it only cost 135. Several crew members criticized man's decisions during production, which featured sudden script changes, filming in unsafe weather conditions, and choosing locations that even the police avoid, drafting gang members to work as security. Wow. Have you ever been, like, when you went on your honeymoon or anything like that, did you go to, like, a like an all-inclusive resort in basically a third-world country? No, our, our honeymoon was in San Francisco. Oh, okay. Well, when when we went to ours... I remember getting there and you're at this really nice resort Yeah. and they look at you and they say, don't leave the resort because mm. if you do, you will be shot and killed. And you're like, uh, excuse me. And they're like, do not leave. Do not leave. Wow. And you're like, Oh, okay. So yeah, they're basically in a third world country and it's unsafe to basically leave the resort. Okay. Good to know. Good to know. Haven't been to one yet. Now you're, you're really selling me on it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Go to Antigua. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, man wanted the film to be as realistic as possible and took uh, Colin Farrell along on what were thought to be real drug busts undertaken by the FBI. 
Although they later found out these were just staged. Yeah. So that's a big trope by man who he's always getting people to become obsessed at his level of detail yeah. on things. So, Hey, uh, for heat, it's essentially, Hey, you're going to get trained on how to use these guns exactly how they would do it. Um, Ali, essentially he taught Jamie Foxx how to fight like Muhammad Ali. So he is meticulous. It's these details, right? Yep. So Jamie Foxx was Some might call it micromanaging. <laughs> it might be. Yes. Yep. Uh, Jamie Foxx was also characterized as unpleasant to work with. He had won an Academy award after signing onto the film, but before production began and subsequently called for upgrades in his salary and other compensation, he demanded top billing in the film's credits and was also said to have complained that he was paid less than Colin Farrell. Fox's salary was raised considerably, and Farrell's was cut slightly to address this. Wow. Fox also refused to fly commercially, successfully lobbying Universal to hire a private jet for him. Nice. He also objected to filming scenes shot on boats or planes. Eventually, after gunshots were fired on set in the Dominican Republic... Fox left the country and returned to the United States. This forced the production to abandon the script's intended ending, slated to be shot in Paraguay, and revert to a previously discarded one that Mann had written, which was set in Miami. One crew member later opined that the Miami-based ending was the dramatically inferior of the two, though Mann has said he came to prefer it. <laughs> like Collateral, which also starred Fox, most of the film was shot with the Thompson Viper film stream camera, while Super 35 was used for high-speed und and underwater shots. Now, what's important about this camera, because you're thinking early 2000s, um, Zodiac was the first digital feature film made by a major studio without using videotape or compression in its capture or editing. Mm -hmm. Fincher became interested in using the camera on a feature film after shooting commercials for Nike. And so you've got Michael Mann looking at this technology and saying, hey, now I want to play with it, right? Yep. So that's why the film has the look that it has. And keep in mind, you've, you've got some auteur directors who are looking at the new technology and, and trying to bring it over into like mainstream film. And that camera is considerably smaller. So you're getting into more intimate areas with not with these huge cameras, but this digital camera that you can get, say, in a shower with people or in cars and get very close in. And steamy showers. Yeah. Yeah. Steamy and steamy. <laughs> um, and you're getting very intimate. Um just like in close proximity to the actors because that camera um, is small and you can move it so quickly. Um, if you ever seen behind the scenes for films now, you'll see a lot of cameras and there's just the guy with the little kind of shoulder mounted one. It's just not very big. And they're moving around with the actors watch like John wick behind the scenes stuff. Yeah. And you'll see that guy and they're, moving around and the camera's moving quickly and all that. I mean, this is basically this. And like you said, Zodiac are kind of the Genesis for all that. Um, yeah. And we're kind of proving that it can work. Yeah. We're in their early stages of it as well. So mm -hmm. th this is an interesting property because, you know, Zodiac was 2007. Michael Mann is, is starting to experiment with this film uh, a year before, right. Mm -hmm. Or this type of filming. Well, I think Zodiac, came out in 2007, but it took way longer. To, I mean, it, it was a long production as well. Fincher's another guy who is meticulous about cameras being where he wants them and, and how he wants them to be lit and all this. Yeah. 
So you, you have a film that's got uh, what, what you might consider an experimental look in compared to commercial film at that time, right? Mm-hmm. And it's based on a property that is about 15, 17 years old. Uh, at with, the time, yep. Yeah, and, and Colin Farrell, you know, Jamie Foxx, obviously Academy Award-winning Jamie Foxx, um, Michael Mann film. I think all the ingredients are there, but this one, it it just... For a summer blockbuster, it didn't do very well, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, again, so different than TV adaptations at the time. I mean, and when you hear Michael Mann is going to do an adaptation of Miami Vice, you should have thrown up the red flag right then and there and say it's probably not going to be a knee slapper. Like, there's not going to be a lot of comedy in Michael Mann films, so let's uh, set our expectations. Yeah, absolutely. So how about we take a quick break and then we come back and talk about revisiting this film and, you know, see how it sits in 2023. How's that sound? Let's do it. All right. We'll be back. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. In a chase that will leave you stunned and breathless. In a story too bizarre to be fiction, in the great tradition of American thrillers comes The French Connection. From one end of town to the other, from the penthouses to Skid Row. I Popeye's here! The meanest cop in the toughest city in the world is after The French Connection, and he's moving at high speed. You want to take a ride here, Batman? Popeye Doyle. He fights dirty and plays rough. He's bad news, but he's a good cop. He's got a nose for trouble, and this time he smells $32 million worth, and every penny points to the French Connection. Popeye Doyle. He cracks skulls, breaks cases, and shatters. Gene Hackman is Popeye Doyle in The French Connection. In color from 20th Century Fox, rated R, under 17, not admitted without a parent. The French Connection is smashing entertainment. A supreme movie movie, says Judith Crisp. The French Connection. Okay, we are back, Brad. I this is one you and I just have this weird relationship. <laughs> we'll we'll pick a film and you pick the odds, I pick the evens. And then sometimes we if if we know we're going to be on the same page with the movie, we just text about it all week. And um there's there's no secrets, right? We'll be like, "Man, this thing's terrible." And, and yeah. we'll have fun, you know, talking about how terrible it is or if we really like it, then it's like, "Oh my gosh, did you see this, that or the other?" And I, I don't think it takes away from the, our conversations that we have, but uh, I got to be honest with you, we've gone radio silent on this one, and I have, 
I have no idea where you're going to land on it. Did, did uh, let me start by just asking a couple questions. Did you see this in the theater when it came out? I did. <laughs> so Michael Mann is one of my favorite directors. So I was going to see it regardless just because at the time this was 2006. So I was getting done with college and essentially was like, okay, let's uh, go to the movies for the summer. And um, I remember being on some music message boards uh, for the band audio slave okay. and hearing that their songs were going to be used. And these were going to be newer songs that were on their album coming up. And I was like, okay, I'm in because I want to hear the audio slave songs. Um, and so that's all I needed. And like I said before, I wasn't a big fan of the source material. Miami vice is not a show that I would hold up and say, this is the, greatest thing I've ever seen. But again, it was Michael Mann. It was Colin Farrell. It was Jamie Foxx. It was audio slave. I'm there. Um, so I saw this opening night. Oh, wow. Okay. And, uh, did you own this prior to us talking about it? Oh yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep. I've seen it, uh, probably one or two more times since then. Um, okay. and, uh, I will get into my thoughts now if you would like me to. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm curious what your initial thought was when you saw it in the theater and having all this exposure to other Michael Mann materials or just, you know, where action movies are today or dramas, yep. like how, so, how this sits today. So when I initially left the theater, I remember, you know, like when you see a film from one of your, one of your guys mm -hmm. and you, you see a movie and you're not quite sure about it. But that walk from the theater to the car, you're trying to convince yourself, no, that was, no, that, that was good. Like, no, it, it was good. No, it, it was good. It was good. No, no. Yeah, it, it was good. Don't worry about it. It, it was good. <laughs> and I remember not quite loving it at the time, because this is coming off collateral, which I think is an amazing piece of art and Cruz's amazing like that I, when people say tom cruise is not a great actor i point him to collateral because i think that's like one of his best performances that movie um, is super intense as well i mean it, it, it is was, it was really successful and i think deservedly so for all of the ingredients are there yeah um ollie i was predisposed to like ollie because ollie is my favorite athlete of all time um and then before that was the insider and then heat's and so man is like riding this wave for me. And then I see this and it's not what I'm used to, right? Like we talked about the digital stuff. It was jarring and it was different and it didn't, it still felt like a Michael Mann film, but it just didn't seem or wasn't visually what I was expecting. And like, there's more disco dancing than like shootouts in this film. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you're thinking, okay, this is kind of strange. Um, but after, you know, marinating on for a while, I was like, okay, I, I like it. I don't love it, but I do like it. Um, and then circle around to this viewing and I know what to expect. Um, I think this film has gotten better with time because it was, 10 to 15 years too early. Um, it feels way 
more in sync now with the way films are made. Like take extraction for example, like extraction in this feel like they are cut from the same cloth and this oh, could that's a fit good point. Yeah. Right. Right in line with, with that. And, um, you know, man is, is always going to side with, Hey, here's how these things go down. Here's this guy. He's the middleman for this guy. Um, and he's not going to really harp on side characters a lot. Like side characters are just there. Like the team uh, around uh, Farrell and Fox, like it's not, they're not fleshed out. They're not fleshed out characters. But do, the do one they girl, feel organic though to the scene? They do because like you always have your team of people that you work with. And like, I don't care that I don't know that one of the guys, like, is he married? Does he have kids? Like what, you know, what's his story? Like, it doesn't really matter because he's more wants to be involved in like, how do, how are we going to do these, this drug smuggling? What are these go fast boats? What is this? What is that? And I, I, I enjoy that, but I, I just think, like I said, this isn't your, like your typical action film. I wouldn't, there are, there is action beats, but I wouldn't really say this like is an action film. Well, I would it, say it's more of like a drama. Yeah. But it, I, if in you a think way. about it, so I know heat is on this pedestal because okay. of that sequence. Tread, tread lightly. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm just okay. making a comment here. Heat is on this pedestal in terms of action sequences mm-hmm. because of that shootout and deservedly. So, well, it, it opens with the robbery. It yeah. ends with the robbery. Yeah. Yeah. But if you take a step back from his films in general, the overarching scheme is Michael Mann really an action director? Oh, not at all. Yeah. Not at all. So I, I'm, I'm always confused when, if, if heat was the first film you ever saw, yeah, there's some amazing action sequences in it. But I, but I would even say Heat is has got action in it. But do you do you classify that as an action movie? I, I wouldn't. No, I would consider it like a robbery procedural. Yeah, it feels it feels like this epic crime drama. Yeah, uh, which which there's action you know peppered throughout that's just brilliantly filmed and choreographed. But uh, you know, man has always had spurts of action throughout all of it. Think of Manhunter. That last yep. sequence with Inagata Devita is just yep. absolutely fantastic. But I think people, and, and I guess this is my question, does he film action so well that he sometimes gets pigeonholed for that and people forget that maybe the scope of what he was trying to make was really, you know, almost operatic crime? Yeah. I, I Yeah, I think that is, I think, I think he leaves people wanting more action because it is so well shot and this one like you're right in with the action you're very close to a lot of this stuff it's very violent um and i appreciate that and 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 i don't need like an action i don't need action all the time like i i appreciate plotting um the aryan brotherhood comes in and out of this film just kind of as it's needed and it really it plays on the plot, but not really, but then it does. And then like none of it all really matters. Really. It's just about these guys doing this undercover job and, uh, the stakes get higher because there's kidnappings and, and, um, there's, um, 
another kidnapping. And it's a like, it's just kind of how this stuff would go down. Um, I, I think I could see why people were like, was initially turned off on it. Cause I was, um, it's just, it's really different, but now it's not like now you can <laughs> look back on it and say, Oh, this is just way before it's time. We talk about films all the time. A lot of them are like comedies and stuff where it's just like before comedies were ready to change. Like this one came and, and changed it before society was ready for that. This kind of changed like your crime thriller before it was ready to do so. Um, and you know, a, a lot of times when people retrospectively look back on that, you're like, Oh, I see it now. Like it was just, we weren't ready for it. And I think audiences weren't ready for this because I watch this now and yeah, it's got, it's a little slow here and there, but I think it builds up, um, to a really interesting plot. Again, you're not like overwhelmed with detail on what's going on, but you know enough and you understand enough. And it's, it's a real simple story. It's these two undercover cops who are trying to, you know, break into this uh, smuggling deal and figure things out. And that's all you need to know. I think the performances are probably the best parts. Um, I think Farrell and, and Fox work really well together. We talked about this with, um, what was it last week that we did? Remind me, remind Tango me. Tango and Cash? Tango and Cash. Yeah, it's Brody. They, they kind of argued a little bit, but here, these guys are ride or die for each other. Like, they have, they have done so much stuff together before we get to Miami Vice, the film, that they've, they trust each other no matter what. There's times where he's like, hey, it's your call, or... I'm here with you. You do what you want. Well, there, there's and that they, sequence where Jamie Foxx is, because uh, he's asking Jamie Foxx, Sonny is, is trying to, let's go deeper, right? Mm -hmm. And Jamie Foxx has this look on his face where he's staring at Colin Farrell, and you know he's assessing that history. And when they're asking Jamie Foxx's opinion, he's like, yeah, I'm with Sonny. Yeah. But on his face, you can tell he's like, okay, I got to think about this, right? I got to mathematically historically where has Sonny taken me yeah okay i gotta trust that because in that moment i don't think he does i, I think jamie fox really his acting is really good at that moment because you see it all on his face like he's, yeah. he's trying to do the math and go oh boy i i really don't trust his decision right now but historically this guy yeah, is, but host, yeah 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 and I, I i appreciate that these guys have a history together before we get to this point because oh they drop you we, in it right yeah yeah um i will say it's got my favorite michael man trope where it's like when the heat comes you drop that woman and you get going like that's exactly <laughs> what they do i don't know what woman has uh spurred this emotion in man but like anytime a woman um is in the way our You're guys out. are like dropping them like crazy yep. and getting out so um yeah i think this is a misunderstood I wouldn't say masterpiece, but it's definitely misunderstood classic in a way that I think needs to be revisited by people. So it, it has, it's elevated since your yes, previous. It has got, it has only gotten better every time I've watched it. And oh, um, I'm so glad I you think, said that. 
I think that's probably the best quality of a film. Um, I, I like to be challenged and I, I like a film to maybe not hit with me the first time, but that third or fourth time I watch it, I'm like, wait a minute. I was completely wrong. This movie is much better than, uh, it has any right to be. And that is Miami vice. Okay. I I'm, I think you and I are sharing a brain tonight because or even back in 2006 when we saw it because same thing saw it opening weekend and I remember walking away going I really liked it I don't know why mm-hmm. uh and and there's a section of it specifically in the middle with Colin Farrell and Gong Lee that I'm like I, I don't I don't know what I feel about it uh, and I, I think it has a fantastic first act, has a fantastic third act. And I didn't know what to make of the second act, but put it all together and go, yes, I, I think Michael Mann has, you know, an, another positive on, on his score sheet, right? It's funny you bring that up. Like that second act with the relationship building is only to make that ending more powerful that he has to walk away. Like that's literally all it's there for. I, I don't, I don't Not know all I, it's there for, but yeah, I, I, I maybe would have said that and you, you might be right on it, but I think, uh, this is an action drama, uh, or action crime film. Cause obviously, you know, the third, the third act is some awesome mm-hmm. sequencing, right? But it's that second act that really introduces, the tragedy and the paranoia because of Gong Lee's history and the paranoia of um, Sonny and this lifestyle and, and the things that they're, you know, talking about in terms of, Hey, do you have this safety net? You know, yeah. can, can you stay in Euro in Euro's paranoia as well? And you're in his jealousy, right. Mm-hmm. Of the relationship that he's seeing, you know, show up. So I really, each time I come and watch this film, start to love that second act more and more because the first act represents the setup and the momentum. You're just dropped right into it. And I I love that about Michael Mann. And you're absolutely right. You got all these supporting characters and it feels organic. It feels like you're really in, you know, to this entire universe, but the concentration is always on um, Crockett and Tubbs and their relationship and their relationship with their significant others. Right. Mm-hmm. But that second act represents, I don't think, just setting up uh, the tragedy that occurs, but it really is about flushing out um, the backstory of this tragedy, but also amping up that paranoia mm-hmm. and, and really kind of in, in this very subtle way um, gets you paranoid as a viewer too about how is this going to unfold because you're, you're not sure. Yeah, because I was kind of always waiting for someone to turn. Not Euro. I mean, I knew Euro was going to play a, a a factor, but like someone else, like turn. I was always waiting for another turn because it speaks to that paranoia, right? Like it, it does. The I, flowers I was just waiting for the other shoe to drop. Yeah, the flowers show up, and then mm-hmm. she makes um, you know the speech to to um, Jamie Foxx's character that basically says, "You can't be concerned about me." Because if you do that, you're going to miss something, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I love that exchange that they have at that diner. Um, and, and what's crazy is some people have called this film style over substance. And I totally disagree with that statement. Yeah, it, it has tons of style to spare, thanks to Man's Direction and BB's cinematography. But there's this doomed love story and this pervasive paranoia throughout the film's entire runtime 
that I think elevates the entire storytelling to something very unique. And Miami Vice feels like an art house action film. And that makes mm-hmm. it, to me, very unique in, in Michael Mann's filmography, but I think very unique in terms of crime drama in general. I mean, it, it has this film noir-ish yeah, element to yeah, it. For sure. That's wrapped into um, these action sequences. And I, I think it's borderline brilliant the more times I watch it. Now, that could be hyperbole, and somebody's like, come on, Troy. I mean, you look at all the other Michael Mann films, but I got to be honest with you. Every time I revisit this thing and it's over, I'm kind of like, I wouldn't mind watching that again here very soon mm-hmm. because it seems like on every viewing, it just starts to inch up that Michael Mann rank. Um, and, and I think that second act becomes more and more powerful. Uh, and I think, it, I think it hinges not just on the storytelling and the visuals, but also the performances. And you talked about it. Uh, I think everybody is fantastic. I think Colin Farrell and Gong Lee stand out. Mm-hmm. Their relationship is really fascinating. I believe that whirlwind romance and primal <laughs> attraction between the two. And it's like, and it's ultimate, like you, you know that this isn't the film where those two people get together at the end. You know, that's not this film. Yeah. You, you know, it's going to be a bumpy ride towards the end, but mm-hmm. you are so invested in their relationship and the details that they're sharing and how quickly they can go from, you know, her talking about her family and her aunt and her mother to them having to broker a deal mm-hmm. in a partnership standing in the bathroom. And then I, I, that performance is so nuanced and so unique and I think they nail it. And Jamie Foxx is good. I don't know if he projects as much depth as the other two. He has his moments like that one we talked about where you, you see him, man, he, 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 he believes in the relationship um, with Sonny, but he's questioning that decision at that moment. Uh-huh. Uh, and I, I love his scenes with Naomi Harris, but his quiet acting, I don't know if we're going to call it that, where <laughs> the expressions or whatever, I really don't think he's any match to Colin Farrell. Colin Farrell nails every scene he's in, in my opinion. I don't know. When they walk into the trailer park and she's sitting in the chair He's got this look like I believed it. It's good. I, I just, yeah. I, I think Colin Farrell, the, and don't get me wrong, Jamie, I, all I'm saying is between the two, I think Colin Farrell had more moments to do that. Jamie Foxx is good, um, but there's something about that relationship with him and Gong Lee that I think resonates and had a little bit more time to kind of show you versus the Naomi Harris and Jamie Foxx, although that one was still strong as well. I mean, I know it was always Tubbs and Crockett, but Crockett was like one A, and Tubbs was always one B, right? Like in the in the show, were, yeah, Don together, Johnson, but yeah, yeah. I mean, Don Johnson got his own album. He was yeah. he was singing and, too, and, right? And I understand like Jamie Foxx wanted to be top billing, but this is it's more so a Colin Farrell piece than I think they both. I, I no, don't know. but I, I just yeah. think like he gets more moments. I think Colin Farrell gets more moments. I think so. Well, I think he gets more moment moments with Gong Lee. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and it's yeah, a hundred percent, especially in that second act. The, the other person I want to point out is John or or is as Euro man. He is a great villain. Good, bad guy. Yep. He's really good. So his jealousy over Gong Lee, Isabella, um, the character, and his paranoia over Crockett and Tubbs, it never feels over the top. Like with with him, that Euro character, I'm always worried that he's gonna 
just kind of turn it into a second rate James Bond villain. But I mean, he's, it's not hammy at all. It's not hammy. He's super menacing. He really is in the background, just sort of, he looks like a bundle of rage and chaos that is just going to go off at any moment. Um, and, uh, I, I just, I love his performance. Like it's, how good was that initial meeting with it's fantastic. <laughs> oh my God. Like that, that is one of the most tense scenes I can remember. I and mean, then when someone pulls out a grenade and puts it on a table, like your, your, your stakes have now increased it. That, that is an awesome introduction to like a relationship and an introduction, uh, an introduction to a, or a character and I really think that's one of the standout scenes in this film. Well, just just that sequence when Yero's on his knees um, and you think he's begging for his life, but he's so calm and collective and just saying, look, I, I want to show you something. Like, I did I did what I did, but there's a reason. Yep. Boss, I want to show you this thing. I, I just think it's those little moments where he takes this villainous, menacing character and does something quite different that you don't see a lot of other performers do with that type of character. Yeah. I think that just goes to the sophistication of what man is trying to do. These are cartoon characters. These are real people. Yeah. Uh, Let's talk about the action real quick. So (laughs) there, the action goes from incredibly shocking like that sequence of the two agents just being taken out by the Aryan brothers. Yeah. And you were talking about the camera work. You've got the camera in the backseat of the car and you've got some slow motion practical effects. I mean, it looks like a guy's arm just flies off from one of the bullets. Dude. It's, it's graphic and it's shocking and it, you're right in it. Um, the trailer park sequence, I think is some of the best stuff man has done. It's thrilling and I think it has one of the best um, showdowns you'll see in an action movie. And this is where I was going earlier with uh, Gina Calabrese. Oh, she gives this speech <laughs> before taking the bad guy down. You think so in, in a, in any other action film that would have came from Jamie Foxx. It would have came from Colin Farrell or something of that nature, but she is looking down her gun and uh, looking at this guy who's like, hey, if you do X, I'm just going to blow everything up. And she <laughs> she delivers this speech, this real quick speech. And she's like, nope, this is what's going to happen. Yeah, if I shoot you in the brain, your hand locks up and won't press the button. Yeah, she's like, and, and here's exactly where I'm going to shoot you in the brain. <laughs> and his reaction to it, and then she just pulls the trigger. Yeah. I think that's one of uh, – it's. this is what man does from a screenplay is he he surprises you – not only with how that moment plays out, but who that moment plays out with. And I, I think that's actually kind of brilliant. It's not it, your two main characters. It's this one person that's been in the background. She's tough as nails. And you get to see her in that moment. And you go, holy cow, she's amazing. Yeah. Well, one of the best things about man films is he doesn't fuck around. No, he doesn't. <laughs> it is like, yeah, we're not messing around here. Like this is this is big boy filmmaking here. Yeah, what, what did you think about that final confrontation? So you've got the big um, climactic shootout, and this is where you see Michael Mann really experimenting with that camera, I think. Yeah, that camera is going a lot of different directions. Um, I, I, I'm i a little bit upset it's at night. It's a little bit hard to distinguish some of the stuff, but I think the shootout is, is excellent. Um, and 
there's a lot of tactical stuff involved, which is another staple of, of man. Um, and people are just getting shot at. I, I think Euro getting blasted in the chest and then just spraying. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like I love that death scene so much. Um, I like it. I like it a lot. It's just, I find it overly dark at times and digital sometimes doesn't help that either. But, um, yeah, I think I'm just a little bit disappointed of its overall darkness, but I do like it. There is, there's a lot of big muzzle blast, uh, bursts in that, that it's just always exciting to see. Yeah. So one of the biggest differences between the theatrical cut and then what you would see on like the standard Blu-ray or DVD release is this is where a change occurs that in the theatrical release, there's really not music where there's a small orchestral, oh. but in the unrated director's cut, they bring forth that Phil Collins in the air tonight song to play over it. Oh, so the theatr- I, I had always remembered it in, cause that might be why it triggered me. Yeah. The, the theatrical cut, that song doesn't actually hit until the credits. Okay. But after it was over, like one of the changes they made was, Hey, that song actually would play better during that climactic showdown. I disagree. I think that song should not be in this movie. Uh, I don't mind it. I, I mean, nothing's ever going to beat the Phil Collins yeah. version. Why did they? I, 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 I like their take on it. It, it was fine. And mm-hmm. I actually like the placement of it um, where that song is, because if I remember correctly, cause I haven't seen the pilot episode in a long time, but I think that's where the Phil Collins original song came out was at the end of the pilot. So I kind of like some of that uh, call back to the original television show. But that final confrontation, I mean, here's what here's where man shines. The it's not heat uh, in terms of probably excitement or execution. No, I mean that that would be the hardest, the highest bar. It, it right? is. But you're so close to the action, but not in a confusing or hectic way. I didn't have a problem with the darkness of it because I could see it. It's super realistic. I do like the Phil Collins cover, um, and and I. I like the comeuppance of Euro, but also the, the Aryan guy. Uh, I love Gong Li's reaction when she finally kind of puts two and two together and is like, oh my God, you're a cop. And she just yep. starts walking towards him. It adds that extra. She's like blinded by rage, like literally blinded by rage. Yeah, it adds this extra level of, um, I don't know, stakes to what's unfolding. And I, I just think it's it's fantastic. Here's how good it was. So Tabitha watched this with me. And as that's all playing out, it's almost like a stand-up and cheer moment when these guys get their comeuppance. Yep. And when Yura gets blown away, she's like, good. Thank you. I hate that guy. <laughs> yeah. And that is the mark of a good villain. When the yes. villain is killed and you cheer and you're happy for it, you know you've hated that guy. Yeah. But I, what I also like about this is – I actually thought Tubbs and Crockett were in danger. Like mm-hmm. sometimes you get in these action films and you go, okay, this, uh, your two main characters, they're going to defeat the bad guys, et cetera. Right. It, and what I like about it is it's got an amazing shootout, but at no point in time did I think everybody was safe, especially our protagonist. Well, that's what you get when you have a movie that has balls Yeah, and characters are, getting killed or blown up or 
you know, we've already seen cops get their arms basically shot off. And one of your main characters kind of gets blown to bits a little bit yeah. and you don't know if that person okay. is going to make that it. That might be one of the worst CGI explosions. That was I've a bad seen. early that 2000 CGI. CGI. Holy yeah. crap. Uh, that is the lowest point of the film is that explosion. Um, but no, we, we, we have stakes in this film and anytime there's stakes and there's a body count and we've got some onions on a film, you start to wonder if, Hey, are both of these guys getting out of here? It would not have surprised me if Colin Farrell was killed at the end of this. Yeah. Or Jamie Fox or Jamie Fox, yeah, yeah. either of them. I mean, I agree with you. I, I really, even as many times as I've seen this and you get to that last part of it, I still feel that dread like at any point in time they could they could take a bullet. Yeah, we have I don't want to say we, but the action films have just become so neutered now. Oh yeah. That the stakes are zero. The heroes are never in danger. Um, unless it's sort of like a sacrificial way, you know, like Iron Man and Tony Stark. Like well, even the John Wick films, you know John yeah. Wick's gonna cut, slice, yeah. kick everybody, right? Yep. Um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's kind of disappointing the, the turn that action films have taken just action films used to just be ballsy and now they're not. And it's, it, it hurts the genre overall, but anyway, well, this one does it, it really well. Yeah. It could be the story. I mean, I love the John wick films from an execution standpoint. It's, um, you won't find better action scenes. However, the main protagonist, I'm, I'm never really worried that he's not going to make it per se. Yeah. He's a superhero. Yeah. Whereas in this one, it's shot in such a realistic way. And I, and I think you kind of alluded to this, that second act really puts it all on the line and you really care about where these people are going to end up. You know, it's not going to be in a happy ending per se, Mm -hmm. but you don't, if, if if in the back of your head, you go, well, I'm pretty sure this isn't going to end as a happy ending is this where I'm going to get that tragedy? It, it's sitting there right in front of you, right? Yeah. Yeah. And well, it's got two audio slave songs. I got to hear for the first time in a Michael Mann film. So that was uh, oh, something I will. Yeah. What'd you think about the ending? Like how this all plays out? It is a little weird. I, I have always like they escape. He obviously takes her to um, let her, basically go back to Havana. So she can't get, I guess, arrested for her involvements. Um, and it's just kind of like, boom, we're done. You know, it's like abrupt, but these guys wake up tomorrow and probably do this all over again. Right. This is just two or three weeks of their lives and that's it. And we start the film kind of jumping into something that they're doing in a club and, this ends and it's just kind of like, okay, like that was the story we told, but these guys will go on. I kind of like it. Uh, I <laughs> it's, it's a great ending, but I, I don't know if I have that much optimism the way you do that. They just go on to the next thing because the, the police raid the compound for like really the, the, the big bad villain, right? Yep that you see a couple of times. Jesus. Jesus. So he's gone. No trace of him. She's going back to Havana. They, you know, she, uh, was it Trudy is coming out of the coma. Was that yeah. the character's name? And, uh, 
you still have that threat in the world out there who knows who you are now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you you basically have Sonny and Isabella can't be together. And they think the only way they can survive is for her to go back to Havana, him to go really, you know, back to the police force. She's coming out of a coma. He's by her side. But in the background is this threat that is always going to be there. Mm -hmm. And that is an amazing sort of paranoid, doomed love affair. Yeah, that's the whole the whole crux of this film is about playing on paranoia. Yeah, I mean, would would this classify as like a modern film noir then? Oh, yeah, it would have to be. This is plays into all those tropes of a of a noir. Yeah, I, I I love the ending. Like every time I see that ending, it's one of those. It feels a I don't want to call it nihilistic, but it feels tragic. It's so tragic, and you've got these characters who went through all of this, and you almost feel like they're not done. Like they're they're always going to be looking over their shoulder. Yeah, and Miami Vice Two would have been awesome. Uh, because yeah. they would have been the hunted this time. Yeah, would you would you yeah. have wanted a sequel to this? I almost. Uh-huh. I don't know. I, I mean, I would love to see all of these people back on the screen and Michael Mann directing and everything. Yeah. But I'm really happy we have what we have. Well, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm always happy about that. But I just think we've, they did so much work in the hour, the two hours and 10 minutes. It's like now what happens? Yeah. They are, their cover is blown. He knows yeah. they're in Miami. What do we do next? And, you could have, that would have probably been your, like your action film, right? Yeah. So man probably wouldn't have wanted to do that because it's not, that's not his MO. So if he's not going to direct it, probably not. But no, I, I, I would have liked to have seen a continuation of, of what happens next. Cause like when I say, you know, they could get up the next morning and life is the same. Obviously it's not like they are, they are on someone's radar that you do not want to be. Uh, on their radar for sure. Yeah. For, for an individual who has like so much reach. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's, they were, he was burned by these two guys and he's not just going to forget that. Yeah. That's not going unanswered. Of course. Uh, what, what other thoughts do you have on this? Um, like I said, just with my thoughts, like I definitely think if you saw this 15 years ago, 17 years ago, good God, what is time now? Yeah. Um, it is time to revisit. It is time to reevaluate this place much better in 2023 than it did in 06. Um, this is definitely kind of the blueprint for kind of making these crime dramas. And um, yeah. And performance wise, you're not going to get, I know Farrell has like come out and said like, yeah, this wasn't, you know, the greatest film and all that stuff. I'm like, dude, I don't know if you should have said that. Like, I think you should stand behind. Well, I think Michael Mann has kind of criticized this film too. And, and yeah. it didn't hit his level or his vision, but I, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm with you. If everybody who participated in it, they may take a step back and go, that's not what I wanted or wasn't to their full potential. No, I think if this was a success, they might have a different tone. Yeah. Um, because winning always changes things. Um, but <laughs> Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think, I think on a, a reevaluation, I, I think this is coming around to people being like, "Wait a minute, this might be a classic." Uh, I never upgraded from the DVD. 
uh-huh. and it looks great on DVD. Oh wow! Okay, I, I well, gotta be honest. So I don't know if it's be, I don't know if it's that um, camera really works for like the grain and stuff that maybe a DVD brings to it. Because mm-hmm. I was I was always fascinated with the colors of the sky and the background and everything else, even on the DVD print. And I know the Blu-ray didn't get a lot of high remarks on you know websites like Blu-ray.com. I would love for this to get a 4K release, uh, just for the Dolby Atmos for for some of the action sequences, you know, something of that nature. Yeah. But um, yeah, I don't know. I that that DVD has the unrated cut. I may go pick up that Mill Creek because that's how you get the theatrical cut. Yeah, in I kind of want to revisit the and you get the, the Kingdom on Blue. Yeah, that's a good deal. Um, yeah, the only the only sucky thing is they're all on one disc, so I don't know what the compression rate is on that. You have to flip it. Is it a flip disc? No, it's a Blu-ray disc, but both <laughs> yeah. movies. So you know how Mill Creek does flip, it. They'll the, put the, 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 yeah. Oh yeah, I still have some flippies. Yeah. Um, All right. Well, I, I'm going to ask you the question then. We just got done revisiting 2006's Miami Vice. Is it a bomb? Definitely not a bomb. Uh, I agree 100. percent I I like your comment. Like if people saw this back in 2006 and were like, meh, kind of lukewarm on it. I really, I, it's due for a revisit and a reevaluation. And I, I really wish people would go back and pay attention to this one and give it another shot. Uh, I I think it ranks as one of my favorite Michael Mann films the more times I see it. I really enjoy this one. Yeah. I, it's hard for me to rank it. It's yeah, hard. I He's one of those directors I can't go, well, this is one, two, three, four. Like each, each of his films, there's something about it I really love. Yeah. Um, because they're... they're they can be so different and unique. Yeah. But Miami vice to me is just one of those things where it's like, I just give it another chance or those who haven't seen it, go back and seek this one out because even if you didn't like the TV show, I I think you would still like this one. I think up until black hat, wasn't this his, Oh yeah. Up until black hat, Miami vice was his lowest kind of, critically received film even over public enemies public enemies was a 68 oh okay um, yeah i like this one way more than public enemies i do too and i i will apologize for public enemies i i, I like it um i don't it, love it it's okay um yeah I, it's just every time i watch this one i like it more every time i watch public enemies i i kind of there's something about it that goes down <laughs> for me whereas this one goes up yeah i i think and I'm not going to praise Michael Mann anymore after this, but he's one of those directors that each of his films gets better every time you see it. Even if it's a bad film, even black hat after watching it for a second or third time, I liked it way better than I, my initial viewing. I, I think all of his films get better because they're complex and they're deep. And there's so many details involved in it that, you catch new stuff all the time, and I think it makes you appreciate them more after each subsequent viewing. So, again, watch Miami Vice. The Keep. I, I got it. Where, where do you land on The Keep? Uh, that's probably my least favorite of his films. It feels the least like Michael Mann as well. Um, yeah, it's it's got some interesting visuals to it, but I got to be honest, that thing bores me to death. Yeah, it is kind of boring. Okay, cool. Just, just make. But sure. then he follows it up with Manhunter, which I think is almost oh, perfect. Geez. And then I showed that one to week. Angel uh, last year, and, and she fell in love with it. So and, and then the God, like the ins, then you have like the Insider is like that's a perfect film. God, it's just <laughs> nah. anyway. 
Uh, well, let's let's get to some feedback. We had some feedback. We had an interesting feedback this week. Ooh, yeah. So Kevin, he's one of the co-hosts of Raiders of the Podcast. I, I'm I'm a little behind on that one. I think I'm still back in December when they're doing an Albert Pune retrospective. Oh yes, okay, okay. So uh, Kevin sent us some stuff. Here we go. Okay, I have made a lot of progress, but I am still behind in my listening. So if you read out this email, then I may hear it in a month or two. <laughs> I have made my way through every episode with the exception of the Cowboy Bebops, which I bought on Blu-ray but have yet to watch, and the few films I have yet to see for the first time. Anyway, I am belatedly adding another voice to the chorus of support for The Shawshank Redemption, a film I think Troy... Now, I got to ask you, Brad, he has in parentheses P-A-H. Is that pa? Pa. Pa. Okay. So a film I think Troy, pa, was unduly harsh on, and dare I say swayed more by the weight of almost 30 years of appreciation and acclaim than the content of the film itself. I have a few points to put forward for the defense, and I do know that Troy, pa, at least acknowledged that it was a good film and not a bomb. One. I have found over the years that people either prefer the Green Mile or the Shawshank Redemption based on which of the two they saw first. I am no scientist and don't have a wealth of hard data, but knowing that Troy had seen the Green Mile first made me suspect he would prefer that to Shawshank Redemption. Um, Your scientific accuracy is correct. Okay. Number two. Although books and movies are different mediums, part of the joy of Shawshank is how some people fit the role so perfectly. Robbins and Brown in particular, and how some people did so well that they made the roles their own, Freeman and Gutton. Robbins deserves even more praise for absolutely nailing the quiet manner of Andy Dufresne. 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 (laughs) And that little smirking expression described in the novella. Brad describes that opera music scene and Troy, pa. Just gives a verbal shrug. <clears throat> yes. <laughs> no, no, no. No, sir, I will call in Jose if I need extra counsel here. That is a classic movie moment, as is that rooftop scene mentioned. I'm glad that Brad mentioned both of these when challenged. Great movies are lucky enough to have one great scene. This has at least two. I would also put forward the resigned and tired speech by Freeman as he goes through the motions at yet another parole hearing and the tangent, we go on to hear the tale of Brooks. Uh, yeah, they're, they're pretty good scenes. They Troy <laughs> number four. It's undeniable that alongside with twists and turns, we're using the word twists and turns loosely, but okay. The Shawshank redemption is a tale built on the tropes of the prison movie. I hundred percent agree with that. I would hold that again against it if it didn't do a great job of using and twisting those tropes eg we're told of andy not always winning every struggle with the sisters cool hand luke is a great movie Uh, i'm sorry (laughs) cool hand luke is a masterpiece kevin uh and one of the best prison movies arguably the best agree just reading the sentence troy (laughs) oh sorry all right just i want you know that's getting a 4k release guess you find that on day one uh stir crazy is another yes there's also Papillon, Midnight Express, The Last Castle, uh, Starred Up, and many others. Brute Force is really worth a rewatch, by the way, Brad. There you go. Any subgenre being overshadowed by one or two towering classics doesn't stop other films from coming along to contend for the crown, even if it's temporary. Yeah, that's a good point. I, you know, I give, I give 
you know, some credit to Kevin for pointing that out. I think I do it 100%. I will take something of a particular genre, put that on a pedestal, and unfairly grade movies towards that. Oh, yeah. And I know I did that with Shawshank. Oh, this isn't as great as Blade Runner, so therefore the sci-fi film is not great. Like, oh, yeah. Two things to be true at the same time. Uh, absolutely. I doubt I've done enough to change the mind of Troy. Pah. <laughs> uh, so from what I am hearing, Troy, is Brad was right. Of course. what I'm hearing. Okay. Hey, yep. I didn't call it a bomb. I just... I know. I... I'll finish this you and then I'll diminished comment. it a little bit. I diminished it. I did, but I do think he might rate the film a bit more favorably if revisiting it without unfairly weighing it against the fans who found it and realized they wanted to revisit it again and again over the past few decades. But I'm pretty sure he'll still prefer the green mile, which is also pretty great. I don't know when you'll read this email, whether it's the morning, afternoon or evening, but whenever you read it, <laughs> thanks for reading it. Oh, that's awesome. nice. nice. Kevin from Raiders of the podcast. Go listen to that podcast folks. It's really fun. Absolutely. Um, Kevin, I, I agree with you 100%. I do want to revisit it because I do think two things get in my way of enjoying that, or maybe three things. One, it is that I saw The Green Mile first, and and I do prefer that one. Uh, two, I will always unfairly hold that uh, cool hand Luke kind of above everything there, right? So yeah. I, need, I need to put that on the sideline. And uh, three, I think I need to kind of take the... I don't know how you say this, like the love of this film and sideline that one too, and maybe come at it with, okay, now that I've seen it all and I know what to expect, can I go back, revisit it and just kind of take it on my own terms? And and I do plan to do that. Yeah. Um, but I, I do, I do love this email. This, this, this is a very laid out, um, I don't know, good way for, for me to go back and watch that film. I love it too because I was right. Yeah, of course, you're always right, Brad. It's your world. I live in it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, romance season continues. We're right in the middle of it. It's your pick uh, for the next one. So, what are we doing, Brad? We are we are going with a big one, which Uh-oh. is arguably. So I, I did a lot of research, and you and I talked a lot about this film. I was shocked when you picked this one because I, I immediately threw a flag on the field, and I was like, "Nope, that's wrong." The whole, um, the whole premise is bombs. In yes, uh, but the studio has come out, yeah. and the director has come out and said, "Hey, you know, we caught this movie costs a certain amount of money, and it made what you would think would be a lot of money, but uh, it was uh, considered a bomb with the with the studio." Ooh. Um, and it is probably one of the most important films made in the last 25 years. Um, it is Fight Club. Oh, boy. Starring Edward Norton and Brad Pitt. I, when was the last time you saw this? Uh, it's been probably about five years. Okay. Pre, I, I, I watched it during the pandemic uh, just because. <laughs> so. So I can I ask you just uh-huh. in all honesty, Fight Club, are you nervous in revisiting and talking about that film in public in 2023? No, not because at all. Because I, I know the people who listen to our show are smart enough to know that what we're doing, and that's all I, re- I like. I understand where you're going with that, but look, it's a movie. <laughs> like we we have to stop. As a society, we have to stop. Like, not everything has to be so goddamn serious. 
my wife has been so excited for the Hogwarts Legacy game. And like she was like looking at some stuff and she's like, these people are like attacking these other people for playing a video game. And I'm like, you have no idea. Oh, because it goes back to son was rolling and all this stuff. And I'm just like, look, you have to separate things. I understand some people should be crucified. I understand that. But like someone the other day was mentioning about, hey, I could never buy a Tesla because I think Elon Musk is a dickhead. And I'm like, I okay, I, I can respect that. But what happens if you just want to buy a car? Like, do you judge other people for having a Tesla that they like want to blow Elon Musk? Like, you gotta, we have to stop. We just have to stop. <laughs> I And look, I'm sensitive to all these things. Like, I think transphobia is the worst. You are I think way a lot more of this stuff, sensitive to this than I am. Yeah. Yeah. I, I yeah. And, and, but, even I'm like, guys, thousands of people worked on a video game or hundreds of people worked on a movie. We we have to stop. Like, we just got to stop. But, but I'm excited. Like, Fight Club, I remember getting a DVD player probably in the year, probably in 2000, 2001. Fight Club was the first DVD that I bought with my, with my DVD player. Yeah, I, I will. It had that little brown bag looking thing yeah, and yeah, yeah. all that stuff. I'll say this, I'm excited to talk about it too, but I would also forewarn people that a movie like that and talking about it in 2023, you cannot uh, get away from some of the messaging in that film or even its thesis about men, about society, about chaos. Uh, We're gonna be pulling probably some commentary and, and judging it based on, hey, what is its relevance in terms of messaging in 2023. Well, and then what people, the wrong people took the wrong messages. From. Yeah. And I remember, you know, people starting fight clubs and you're like, you miss the whole goddamn point. Like, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it, it, it will be interesting. I'm excited for that discussion because I think it's look, art should be challenging and art should make us reflect on ourselves in society. Good art does that. And I think, Fight Club is probably more relevant in 2023 than in 99, just like Miami Vice was. It's crazy. Oh, I, I agree with you. I, I think it'll be interesting. Like the the question that comes to mind right out of the gate, or the the one that makes me a little nervous is if if we were to say, is Fight Club in 2023 borderline transgressive cinema to the majority of the population anymore because of the the way it messages and what it mm-hmm. what it's tackling, like. That'll be an interesting conversation to me, but I would also forewarn people to, to your point. It's like, Hey, look, uh, I, I, I know exactly what's going on. The, the Hogwarts game is a great example. I've, uh, our household was the same way. I'm not a Harry Potter fan. My, my son is, he was excited about buying the game and he wanted to read a little bit about like, what was it like playing it or see YouTube videos. And it was so hard for him to find content about the game itself versus all of the stuff that's out on social media that surrounds the game. Uh, and, and that was kind of disheartening because like you said, it's kind of like, well, at what point are we going to kind of start compartmentalizing or, uh, maybe, you know, I don't know, calming down a little bit and, and looking at what we're talking about. But, um, I, I think fight club is, is going to get into that arena. And I think people just have to like, Hey, we're, we're going to talk about the film. We're going to talk about its influence and we're going to talk about our thoughts on it and take it at face value. So. It'll be a fun discussion, I think. Yeah, I can't wait. Yep. So 
how do people get a hold of us and share feedback? Uh, maybe they can tell us what they think of Miami Vice or even share their thoughts on Fight Club. How, how do they send that our way? Yeah, that's notabompod at gmail.com or you can head over to our website that is notabompodcast.com and hit the contact us button or you can hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And Troy, I will say thank you for everyone who has commented and liked and retweeted and all our engagement for this year just hands like just across the board has been crazy. 2023 for our podcast has been insane and I cannot express my gratification in my, in my kind of my, I thank people enough for sharing it, commenting, all that stuff. It's uh, not that like I needed any sort of rejuvenation because I love doing this, but it does help. Like every, my dad always told me, if you wanted an attaboy, you should join the circus. But like, it is nice to hear it every once in a while, you know? Yeah, I, I got to be honest with you. I uh, was. And I want to make my, my dad was a very supportive <laughs> and very, he told me he was proud of me like all the time. But like, it was from people outside of our bubble, you know? So I just wanted to clarify that. But anyway, go ahead. No, I, I, I'll tell you the, the thing that happened even outside of emails and, and reviews and stuff like that was. Um, talking to somebody I didn't know listened to our podcast and teenager named Reese and said, uh, hey, I really like listening to your show. And then we start talking about one of the movies that we talked about. So I've, I've always said that like movies are the thing that I think bring people together and like or dislike a film. It gives you a chance to kind of share ideas and communicate. And uh, it's it's really fun to hear. And because I'm, I'm around teenagers, obviously, with my kids. <laughs> But I love hearing their take on films or showing something to my kids and, um, you know, kind of getting their perspective on it, especially if it's an older film that maybe I discovered as a teenager and what do they think of it now. But to hear that from another teenager that wasn't my own, that was like, yeah, I, I listen to your guys' podcast. I'm trying to share it with my friends. It's like, really? <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, that's awesome. But uh, he, he's an amazing Our kid. Our combined age is 90. So. Yes. <laughs> there God. you go. Uh, but no, it's fun. And, and folks, if you do like what you hear, share it, leave a review on any of the, uh, platforms that you listen to the show. Cause I think that's the easiest way for people to find us. Mm -hmm. But like Brad said, thank you so much for just commenting, engaging. We, we aren't, uh, posting things on a daily basis cause that's hard. Uh, yeah. and, and plus, I mean, we don't have, we save all of our comments for the show. Right. Um, but we do try and share some, uh, I don't know, fun little posts here and there. And, uh, Brad, last thing before we kind of do the sign up, are, are you prepared for the breaking Brad episode for this month? Oh, you know what? I, I have, I have crossed that off my list. I have seen the apple. Oh, you did. You did watch. Okay. Good. I watched it this weekend. Yeah. So we're probably about a week from recording that one and hearing your thoughts. Uh, I'm glad you're doing good after watching that. So I, I cannot wait to hear your thoughts on that one. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, boy, I, I have nothing, nothing. I can't no, no, say no, don't share it. Don't share it. But if there've been a ton of people who continue to send us in some amazing suggestions and we're, we're going to pull one of those for March. We've already picked it. And I, I can't wait to share that one with you. But I, I'm really excited about uh, talking about the Apple. So that'll be coming here in about a week or so. If it's LaQuisha, I'm going to be very upset. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, what else? Did we miss anything? Are yeah, there any so that's that's 19, 
80s the apple so if you want to play along uh go check that out it's on tubi the rip is pretty bad from what uh sammy told us um i believe what was it kino has it for usually it's on sale for 10 bucks i've checked it every few days and it's still been 10 bucks i think it was 10 bucks yesterday so the blu-ray is a great transfer of it by the way yep yep um so yeah but if you want to hear us talk about really bad movies, go back and listen to the ginger dead man with myself, Troy, Jose and Sammy as they try to break me with really bad movies. And, uh, yeah, again, thanks for all the feedback. People have liked that concept and, and people who know me are surprised that I agreed to let this happen. So yeah, I'm surprised too. What other podcast should they check out outside of, uh, Raiders of the podcast? Yeah, so we got Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, Watch Skip Plus, The VHS Files, Night of the Living Podcast, Backlook Cinema Podcast, and the Mixtape Podcast as well. So check all those guys out. If you do, hey, tell them that we sent you over there just so they know that our our listeners are, are loyal and we'll check them out as well. Um, I know a lot of people have migrated. Well, not migrated because they've stayed there, but they have... Uh, Checked us out from the GGTMZ and uh, have really kind of come to take us uh, as as part of their own. So we appreciate all that. I agree. So I don't know if you're listening in the morning, the afternoon, or evening. Thank you for playing along. Go back, revisit Miami Vice. We think you'll love it. And come back here next week because we're going to keep this bromance going. And we're going to talk about Fight Club. And you know what the first rule about Fight Club is? You talk Ooh, about Fight Club. We can't talk. Oh, that's going to be a short episode. Oh, yeah. True. Good point. I got the rules wrong. Okay. We'll see you next week. Don't lose your head. Don't lose your head.